welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. Thanks for joining us again. Um, the Bridge the Divide podcast is going to talk about some culture clusters. Now, if that sounds strange to you, it's okay, because we have a guest with us who's going to help talk us through it. Um, for, for Bridge the Divide, you know, our focus has been sometimes on the bridges. We, we like to create relationships. We like to uh, connect one group of people to maybe a group of people they had not uh, been in proximity to or had not had deep relationships with. Um, and we think that creating those relationships is a part of learning and growing um, and leading to the racial repair and racial reconciliation. So today we have a guest with us, uh, Santis Beatty. Hey, Santis. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and he is going to talk to us about cultural clusters. Um, I met Santis a few months ago in a, um, in a book club, and I heard him speak about some of these things and thought, well, this is something that we should probably get Bridge the Divide to talk about because it made so much sense to me. And instead of trying to translate it and uh, and and. I don't know, I can't translate it. So I <laughs> figure that way we just find him and and let him kind of discuss this with us. So Santis, can you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, yes. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. It's a joy to be a part of uh, the podcast and uh, just hearing from a distance of the great work being done. Uh, it's an honor and privilege to uh, just be a part of the conversation. So I am uh, the director of multi-ethnic ministries for the Wesleyan Church uh, World Headquarters uh, stationed in Indianapolis. And I have the privilege of serving about 1,600 churches in North America. Uh, was a pastor for about uh, 15 years or so as a youth pastor, a teaching team. And prior to that, um, was also uh, a part of a, a small college uh, in North Carolina where I did um diversity work, racial reconciliation, and directed a department of uh, multicultural education. So um, just background has been a mixture of uh, education and ministry, and uh, just feel a call and passion to uh, helping groups of people bridge the divide. And so it's exciting to, to continue the conversation in this way. Mm -hmm. That'll work. We like that. So start off with, you know, just the introduction of of these clusters that you talked about in our other group before, what what is that? What is that all about? Yeah, well, let me use a, a illustration of kind of um, something that's in our culture today that might make sense of it, and then I'll pr probably break it down. So, uh, there's this t TV show out called Blackish, right? Mm -hmm. and it's yep. it's a fascinating show. It's one my my wife and my kids we we love. Uh, of course, you know there's humor and there's um, sometimes people disagree on whether or not they should have gone as far as they did on certain mm -hmm, things. But mm -hmm. the fascinating thing about the show is is it's it's the essence of these clusters at work. And so you have, um, you know, Rainbow Johnson, who's the wife, Tracy Ellis Ross, and then you uh, she's biracial, uh, who's a doctor. And then you have Dre Johnson, Anthony Anderson, a black man who's a marketing executive. And uh, they're both married and they're 
uh, they have this beautiful family with three kids and um, or four kids, and they're trying to figure out how to navigate parenting when they both uh, were born into different clusters. And so they have different ways of doing things and they sometimes conflict. And so um, so I want to describe what those clusters are now and it'll start to make sense um, when you think about Blackish as a TV show. Um, and so for me personally, I, I constantly wrestled all throughout uh, elementary school and middle school and high school, this whole concept of being perceived as too white or too black, mm -hmm. right? And yep. And, and living in the space of in-between. And so trying to understand that for myself and trying to articulate it for others has been a journey. Um, not one that I fully feel like I've arrived at, but this language, as well as other people like uh, resources that uh, Brian Loritz has done on right color, wrong culture, has helped shape that for me. Mm -hmm. So if you were to think about uh, clusters in this context, I used uh, four Bs. Um, because I am a recovering uh, Baptist preacher. <laughs> so so um, maybe, I should, maybe, maybe I should say Baptocostal, right? So um, so I haven't always been Wesleyan. And so alliteration is, is key, right? So yeah. having things that begin with the same letter. So, um, so I have them in four Bs. And the first one is bulk. So uh, if you were to think about bulk as the person or group that is the ethnic majority or that sets the culture, the norms, the standards, for an organization or a church. Now this, this group is usually represented highly in both the levels of leadership and membership. They, uh, they influence uh, things very strongly. They have privilege um, in that group. Uh, one way to really assess whether or not you're in the bulk group is to ask a person in that uh, cluster um, of how things are done. And, and if they can't really answer completely, then it usually means that they're part of that group, right? So if you can't identify uh, being outside of it, it usually means you are in it. It's kind of the uh, sociologists used to use the, the term of uh, a fish doesn't know it's out in water until you take it out of it. And so a person typically doesn't know bulk exists until you take it out of it. They don't know all the privilege and all of what comes with it. Um, until you remove them from it. Okay. Um, so if I were to use, use it in another context, uh, years ago, I took a, a student of mine to a conference and he was in a wheelchair and I had to uh, kind of wheel him around for three days. And it showed me how um, uh, being in the bulk culture, being an able-bodied person, how I don't have to think about things until I'm in this kind of position. Mm -hmm. So think about bulk as the majority that sets the tone, sets the standards, um, and the norms. It's not something that they invite necessarily, but it's something that they are a part of. Um, and then you have the first layer. So in my context, I'm African-American, mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm not a part of the bulk culture in our society. Uh, but the next three Bs, uh, the next three cl clusters would be what, what uh, categories I would say a person in the African-American community would fit into as they relate to the majority culture, family white culture. So the first B is border. Um, and so a border person or a group is, uh, they are part of the minority group, um, but they identify uh, with the bulk culture uh, more so than their own. And this may be due to um, experiences like adoption, maybe their educational environment, where they grew up, uh, geography, where they work, where there's a visible and kind of an unseen pressure to assimilate. Uh, and to be like the bulk culture. Uh, and one benefit from that is that the bulk, I mean, the border group really destroys a lot of the stereotypes. So a lot of the things that you would think about 
stereotypes related to another group. So in my context, the African-American community, they would not be true of border people. Uh, border people typically in a church or organization are the first to arrive on the scene and they are the ones to help start to integrate the bulk group. And they don't really have to have other people who look like them to stay um, because it's not really a necessity to them. They, they came because of the culture, not because of the people. And so border people actually sometimes feel safer to the bulk group um, because there's less that separates them outside of their skin color or their ethnicity or facial features. Okay. Um, now, so, so Santis, let me let me try to um, paraphrase to make sure I'm getting it right in in the context. You know, I get to use me because I'm an only child, and it's always about me. But uh, <laughs> it is always about you. <laughs> so, so I am um, I am in. Cedarburg. I am not from Cedarburg. I'm not from Milwaukee, but I guess I would say that the bulk group is probably white Americans in Cedarburg. Mm-hmm. And then um, I am African-American that's in the area. So we can, we have the similarities. Our kids are going to schools in the same places. The houses are the, the same. The cars are the same. Every Everything else appears the same except I'm black and the majority of people here are white. Is that a is that a good place to start with this the bulk in the border? It's it's not necessarily like that may influence because it's really a, a sense of identity. And so you mm. you can have all of the things that you just described and still be a base person. Okay. Still be still be a bridge person. Okay. Which are the other other two groups. Gotcha. It's really about like how you identify culturally. And so if you're in those groups and you feel like um the, the culture that you identify with the most is the bulk culture or white uh, culture or white society standards, norms, et cetera, then that would make you a part of the border group. Okay. But th- you can have all those things be true and still be very much a base or a bridge. Okay. As I'm um, reading these other ones, we have some of your definitions here to help yeah. us out. And it's look, I don't think you are a border person okay. of what okay. I know of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But yeah, maybe we need to take a break and then get into the other two B's after the break. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. We are here with Santis Beatty. He is giving us information that is new to me and Erica is learning about as well. Um, we're talking about clusters today and he has broken down um, some of the themes around these ideas. And we, in the first um, segment, talked about bulk and border. And now he's going to go into the next two B words for us before we cover some history about where these concepts came from. And then how do they translate to maybe you and your world and other aspects besides maybe just race? Go ahead, Santis. All right. Yeah. I, let me let me just say one thing to to reconnect about the border group that I didn't mention. <clears throat> excuse me. And that is that there's sometimes a temptation temptation that leaders have um, of the vote group when a border person is involved. That that border people have credibility within their group and that they can rally other people. And the unfortunate reality is that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, and so in my opinion, what happens often is when a border group is very evident in a, in a space where there's a bulk culture, uh, that group is more multicolored than it is multi-ethnic. And that's primarily because uh, border people represent the culture that's already there and not a new culture that is uh, to be adapted to. Hmm. It's not until you get into the bridge and the base that you start to see cultural differences rather than just color differences. So the next group is uh, what's considered the bridge. Um, so a bridge is a personal group who is part of the minority ethnic group. So in my case, African-American uh, context, but sits between border and base. And we'll describe base in a moment. And bridge people, usually they start as either a border or a base, but through life experience, uh, self-awareness, they learn how to kind of navigate these two different worlds. And they can usually adapt um, to their surroundings. They can mirror what they see. Uh, they learn to code switch pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the difficult part about being a bridge person is that they're really not fully accepted by either the bulk group or their own ethnic group. Um, they are uh, kind of living between two worlds. They, they become bicultural, bilingual sometimes, and um, they, they typically have authentic relationships, though, with the bulk group and their own. Yeah. And that's what makes them really important part of this of this process. Um, so b- bridge people don't have to see people who look like them to stay, but it will certainly help. OK. Um, and as I said before, border people don't have to see them at all uh, because they're connected more so to the to the culture. But if you have bridge people in your group, that means you're you're on the way to becoming multi-ethnic, multicultural. Um, but you're not completely there until you really begin to incorporate this last group, which is base. Mm-hmm. So base people or group is a, a part of the minority group. They um, they identify most with their own culture and ethnic group. They seek not only to affirm but to preserve the the language, the history, the traditions mm-hmm. of the communities they are part of. Um, They want to draw from um, others in their group. They're usually in touch with the history, the justice and issues of of politics that Mm -hmm. face their group. Mm -hmm. Um, The difficulty, though, with this group is that they really struggle being in uh, mixed spaces because their their patience to the slow systemic change or the lack of understanding where they feel like they have to constantly defend themselves. Uh-huh. makes it not feel safe to be in mixed crowds or to be in multi-ethnic spaces or predominantly white spaces in my context. Okay. So a, a base person will typically need to see other people who look like them to stay. Okay. Um, because that becomes a signal that there's an affirmation and an understanding of the needs of that particular group. Wow. Okay. Now explain to me again, we were talking about blackish. So mm-hmm. we have um, Dre who, you know, when I see him, his he he seems to be very connected with his his group you know his african-american history culture um wanting to make sure that others learn about it know about it when you were talking about the justice that that feels like dre to me and Mm -hmm. and rainbow is she's mixed but she also i think she grew up in the culture of her dad is white her mom is black um the culture of her dad which is where they kind of grew up and and where would she kind of fall on this yeah this is fascinating i mean the show is incredible yeah uh, rainbow or tracy ellis ross she fits in the border group okay that has be- is is becoming more bridge and um dre anthony anderson's character 
uh, grew up base, but has uh, worked to become more of a bridge. And so they're both currently in, in the context of the show, they're both bridges who were border or base and they revert to their uh, previous experience. So Rainbow reverts to being border, Dre reverts to being base when pushed up against a wall, okay. when pushed to, when challenged, when conflict comes out, they're often, they resort to that as their um, place to go to, as their default. Okay. And so they start to struggle to figure out, okay, how do we raise our kids, given that we come from these two different places of, of value, standards, cultures, how do we introduce this to our kids? So in some ways it leans, in some stories and some parts of the show, it leans more border and other times it leans more base. And so it's just interesting to kind of see it from the outside looking in, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that that really does make sense to me. I think that's one of the reasons why um, I do like watching Blackish. I do. I, I struggle sometimes with some of the, the content, but I, I think you do on any kind of show. You can't like everything all the time. But but it's one of the things that I enjoy about it, that it shows some of the struggles you know, when you're sending your child to the private school in the area where you live, where no one looks like you where you live. So it stands to reason that no one's going to look like you when you get inside the private school there versus, you know, sending uh, a child maybe to the next town over or to a public school where they might uh, be more in contact with different cultures, either ones that 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 they might relate to more or just different ones, you know, and, and that's a, a struggle that you go through trying to figure out which one is the right way to raise your child. Um, you know, do you put them in one and then struggle to make sure they have all of the other things that they're missing from that one school by what you do as the parent bringing it in for them? Yeah. And, and even the movie that just came out recently, I think it's on DVD now, um, the hate you give. Oh yeah, which was a, a book made into a movie. Um, the the main protagonist in the film, uh, she she is base who has become a bridge, but then she acts like a border when she's at school. Right. And so uh, she's not a border, but she learns to put on a face where she looks like a border. So she's kind of lived in three worlds, which makes her life very confusing. Mm-hmm. It does. <laughs> and, um, and and the the crux of the show is, or, or the the movie is, when she realizes I can't be all three. Right. And um and how do I learn to live in one to two of these a- areas and be myself? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think our society sometimes asks us to be something that we're not, uh, which is one of the challenges of of writing this piece and developing this. Um, taxonomy, if you will, is a lot of times people are pushed to be bridges. And, you know, the goal is to be a bridge, like Mm -hmm. whatever you do, be a bridge. And, and so it becomes being a bridge comes at the expense of the other two. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what I'd like to say to people is um, there's value and there's room for all three of these. And we need to learn to affirm them um, because there's some people who don't make that, that journey from one to the other. There's some people who are really good and really the way they're wired is to be a sound base mm-hmm. or a sound bridge or a sound border. And so we ask them to be something that they, they maybe don't have the capacity to be and, not, and are not wired to be that way. Right. And so right. the challenge is how do we affirm without um, creating uh, isolation? So for example, a lot of times a base person will see a border person as a sellout. Uh-huh. Or a yeah. a border person will see a base person as being too emotional, and 
um, not being able to talk about some of the real issues because we, we only want to talk about what hurts you. And so um, there, there are these different ways in which sometimes in our society, these groups within the group get put against each other. Right. And so the reason why I wrote this and, and tried to uh, have language for the taxonomy is to try to unearth some of that conflict and say the conflict is actually healthy and good if we understand the value of each group, mm -hmm. uh, because you need them all for a group, for a organization to transition, for a, a church to transition, to be multi-ethnic, you need them all, okay. uh, not just one. Right. Now, can you tell me where uh, this, the concept even of it, you referenced a little bit at the beginning, um, was it called too, too white, too black? What's the, yeah. the history? Where did this all stem from? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I grew up in a, a southeastern part of North Carolina. So I grew up in the south, but I grew up in a very diverse uh, community. So um, it was like 30, 30, 30. Okay. Oh, 30% uh, black, 30% white. That'd be kind of cool, I think. Native. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't until much later than there was the influx of um, more Hispanic population, more Asian populations, because it was in a military city, mm -hmm. military area. But for the most part, it was black, white and native, uh, mm -hmm. specifically Lumbee. And so I constantly felt this tension both at school and at church. Uh, and then I went on to, to be at a predominantly white uh, liberal arts college, um, graduated and start working at a predominantly black church. And so I was constantly living between these worlds and asking myself and the, the institutions and the communities I was a part of like tough questions about acceptance and accommodation and mm -hmm. uh, what it really means to be authentic. Um, and so out of that grew some of this language. And so I was just really put to the test one day, uh, in presenting at a conference and somebody just challenged me to say, like, you need to come up with some language that mm -hmm. describes what you're talking about. Um, and so out of that birthed, um, these terms, th these weren't the original terms. I've tweaked them over the years, but, okay. um, it, it really came out of, the desire for people to have language for what they were feeling, right. but they didn't really know fully how to describe where other people could understand it. Right, right. I like that. All righty. Um, let's go to a quick break and we will um, come back shortly. back again with Santi Spady. We're talking about um, bulk, border, bridge, and base groups. We've, we've been talking about how, it, uh, how they relate to uh, race, but um, Santis, is it, can this concept apply to other things, other um, struggles, other levels of um, identity? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it can. I, you know, the the design, of course, came out of um, one particular sphere, but I think there are places where it, it translates well. Um, and, you know, some of that is in the context of um, gender, um, you know, in terms of orientation, in terms of um, just culture, climate. Mm -hmm. um, for example, my, my son 
is in middle school for the first a year this year. And as we've been talking and some of these concepts have come out, I've uh, he knows how to navigate um, race, mm-hmm. um, but he's starting to run into socioeconomic stuff um, because we moved into a new neighborhood. Right. And so previous neighborhoods were primarily middle class. And now we're in a neighborhood where the gap is, you know, there's some, someone from every aspect of the, um, you know, what we would consider to be the socioeconomic uh, continuum. And so we've had to revisit this from that context. So I think mm-hmm. it does. You know, I referenced the um, able-bodiedness as as one of those things that was an, a wake-up call for me, but I think this does uh, come come in contact with some of these other issues, like their holes. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not completely, uh, you know, scientific in the context of um, some of the sociology and psychology, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's just some of the things that we we encounter when we interact with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it does it does uh, cross some of those lines. I, do, I have to uh, tell a story about my son. And, you know, I don't know how often he listens to my podcast, so I may not get in trouble with him. But um, <laughs> but similar to how you were describing, we typically uh, after the military, the suburbs that we've lived in, we haven't lived in the city, really. It's usually an exurb or a suburb that we've lived in. So um, for his hair, he's always kept a, a short um, a short haircut, kind of like, you know, kind of like his dad. And it's I do it at home. It's a simple thing. It's certainly much cheaper than to try to go out to a barbershop all the time. But as he got older, you know, he kind of thought this is this is the kind of cut that kids get, you know, when their moms do it. I need to go out and, and get my hair kind of the way I like it, apart in a certain place, a certain height, a certain shape. And I thought that that's fantastic. You have a job. I think you should go do that. But part of the learning process for him was where he can get that done. So, you know, he said, okay, I made an appointment. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to applaud your, your, uh, your desire to move forward and you took some steps on your own. He made his appointment at Supercuts, uh, which is just up the street. So then I got a call probably about 20 minutes later going, mom, they said they can't do my hair. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just one of the things because he assumed that everybody could do his hair. It just wasn't something that he thought about. And so he had to find his way to a barbershop And it was a whole new experience for him just because he looked the same as every other man in that barbershop. He had never been in a barbershop and, you know, barbershop culture is probably its own culture. (laughs) So it was a it was a learning experience for him because he hadn't been there. And then some of the men at the barbershop kind of thought, well, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Why haven't you been here? Why haven't you heard some of these things that we're talking about, you know, you don't talk about it with the other, you know, African-American boys your age. Well, he's not around African-American boys his age. So that was just a, a learning curve, something that he had to he had to navigate through. And he did well and he enjoyed the environment and he's gone back several times. You know, once you get a place that you like, he goes back several times and is able to have conversation and, and enjoy the culture that is the barbershop. But it was it was a uh, it was new form. He had to break into it. Yeah, that, that's a great example. And, yeah. and it, you know, Brenda Salters McNeil has a great book called Roadmap to Reconciliation. And she has this graph where she talks about um, or this graphic where she talks about catalytic 
events that either take us to, into transformation uh-huh. or they take us deeper into preservation. Okay. And um, and so the, the, the question is not, do we have catalytic events? We have them all the time. Mm-hmm. The question is, what do we do with them, mm-hmm. right? Like, do we do we take them to a place where we learn, where we grow, where we um, learn to adapt, or do we take it to a place where we we preserve what we already know and find reasons to only live in that place? Mm-hmm. And so that's true of race and ethnicity. That's true of gender. That's true of orientation. That's also true of our politics. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, these these clusters, you know, they they translate well in some of those other spaces. Uh, if we're willing to engage them. Right. And and I hate to put you on the spot, but are you telling me that bulk, border, bridge, and base, is those are um, compartments and everything always either fits in one or the other or, you know, there's some some room around them? Yeah. You know, these, these are broad generalizations, so you can't simply capture all of what, you know, we are as humans in these categories. Um, but they they become simple ways to to look at it. Um, you know, there there's definitely um, you know some flexibility as as people look at the complexity of human behavior. Um, but yeah, these are broad generalizations that it's hard to 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 lock people into these. But they they just become part of the language that helps make sense of some of it. Okay, and and for bridge the divide, we're. Um... You know, we're a group that's moving forward, I think. I think we have uh, a nice base of folks that come. Obviously, people don't show up with the same opinions. They don't show up with the same baggage. We all bring our different baggage from whatever culture or whatever um, um, whatever other interactions we've had that we bring to the table with us. How can we use the the concept of this to kind of define and and gel the group that we're working with and then I guess to reach out to the the folks who haven't come into our group yet as a part of it but if we want to take some action steps and reach out to folks how how do we how do we make this work for us yeah I think one of the steps is really you know seeing you know everybody in the Imago Day, right like we all made in the image of of God mm-hmm. and and that each of these clusters are unique and different and there's variety within them, right? So uh, just like there's four different groups, there are groups within the groups. Mm-hmm. So you have different groups within the base, different groups within the bridge, different groups within the border, and even different groups within the bulk. Um, so we don't want people to think others are monolithic. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the real big piece, though, is the really learning to uh, move from tolerating to accommodating um, to accepting, accepting people for who they are and what they bring. And so when I'm talking to churches and organizations about this, I, I really try to ask them, do you know who you have? Do they, how self-aware are they? And how aware are you of, of what they bring um, to, to your organization? And how do you uh, really release them and empower them to be who they are instead of asking them to conform mm-hmm. and assimilate into something else? And so really, uh, trying to define uh, what it really looks like to be a safe environment, what it looks like to be, uh, I didn't say comfortable, right? That's <laughs> but I, but I did say thing. safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally different. And so having safe spaces, but also uh, encouraging people to be themselves. And, mm-hmm. and that requires, like in some of the work I do in cultural, cultural intelligence work, you know, it's described um, that there's a, there's a part of the CQ will, which, which is action, which is really about adaptability. 
And so adaptability is defined as your ability to engage a new culture, a new experience, while at the same time, understanding who you are and how you operate, but mm -hmm. allowing yourself to become something new because of your experience and allowing that, that environment to experience something new because you're there. Mm -hmm. That if you mm -hmm. can allow both of those to happen and, and not just allow the, want the group to be like you or the group to only want you to be like them, if you can allow for both spaces to become something new, then you really begin to, to tap into the power of uh, not only the cross, but the power of our redemption mm -hmm. is that we are we're made new. And in that process of being made new, much like sanctification, reconciliation is the same in that God does his part, but we have to do our part. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way in which we enter into this process of reconciling creation and relationships, et cetera, where we have to be willing to become something new. Uh, in that process. And so that's, that's a challenge. We have to be intentional about it. Right. It's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> but, yep. um, and messy for things. every five steps forward, you know, one or two back and you, you, um, buckle up and move forward again. And yeah, yeah. But it's worth it. Right. It's worth it. I think people who have been through reconciliation, um, they understand the power of those relationships, the, um, the power of what God can do through them. Um, but, but they're not easy. Right. They're not easy at all. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, for our bridge, the divide listeners, we're, we're continuing to work on what, what will work best for our group, for our folks that are coming together, what kind of things that we need to work on to help our community, um, in, in the places that we think is, uh, there's change, there's a um, there's changes is an option. Things that we want to improve on, ways that we want to repair harm, ways that we want to work on reconciliation. And and at our March fourth meeting, whoever is uh, interested, we are going to do some some visioning and planning and strategizing and kind of talking through where we are and where we uh, see ourselves going here shortly. Um, so Santis, thank you so very much for calling in and talking to us. That's a joy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, followers, we will talk to you on the uh, next podcast. Thanks for listening to Bridge the Divide. Bye-bye.